What's going on, everybody? Welcome to episode eight of Fear Frequency. I am your host, Jimmy Champagne, and with me today is my co-host, George Frizzard. Oh, man, only took three tries to get the intro this time. It's going to be a good <laughs> episode. Always is. Yeah, dude, we got, a, we got a big show. And you know what? These iTunes reviews have dried up. So if you're listening, and I know a lot more people are than have reviewed because we get numbers, uh, you should go rate the show on iTunes or whatever app you're using to listen to the show because that really helps out. We'd love to get on the new and noteworthy section or something, you know, like in the movies and TV. We're going up get we're going up against some big guys here, so if you could help us out, that'd be great. Yeah, I'm just checking right now and yeah, we're still at six reviews. I haven't we haven't got a new one in like a few weeks. Yeah, except for our boy Nolan Mackey, who left the best review of all time. So I'm yeah. gonna put in like clapping sounds here for him, like kids <laughs> I will because I listened through when I edit. <laughs> but yeah, we got a big show today. Uh, we're, I did not think we would have this many director interviews lined up so quick, but we're talking about a movie called Stegman is Dead in segment two, and you interviewed the director, right? Yep, David Hyde. Yeah, and he, he, I listened through. It was really good. Uh, so stick around after our segment two for that. Um, we're also going to be talking about a lot of news, and then another movie called Sweet Virginia, which IFC Films released. They made me say... They made me agree to get a screener that I would say IFC Films, not IFC Midnight. This is an IFC oh, really? Films film. Yeah. They were like, <laughs> we'll only give you a screener if you say it was given to you by IFC Films and not Midnight. And I was like, okay. I mean, it's pretty easy. So uh, that's that's what we got in segment two. And then segment three, as I just mentioned, is George's interview with David Hyde. So it's another big show. Yep. It's gonna so be good. let's get started. All right. So I got this first one in here. And these guys for like their editing reel... They uh, took they took the Halloween trailer, mixed it with the Nine Inch Nails cover that we talked about a while ago, and made David Fincher's Halloween. And it's like a trailer for Halloween, as if David Fincher made it. And it's awesome. Yeah, it's something that I watched it, and it was like, I didn't know I wanted a David Fincher-directed oh, Halloween movie. And then I you want. watch the trailer, and you're like, damn, this is so cool. He is the best, dude. He's probably up... Yeah, he's up there with my favorite directors. For sure. He's so good. Yeah, and the, I mean, the editing is immaculate. This thing looks like a professional Hollywood trailer, and yeah. the song fits so perfectly with it. It's awesome. This yeah, is these guys, so uh, cool. This is like part of their Vimeo editing reel, and it's, they're called Bad Taste. <laughs> That's funny. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it's pretty cool. They use the Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross Halloween theme remix that came out earlier in the year, and yeah, they credit everything in the description, which is kind of cool. Even the fonts they used. So you want to check that out. Um, just Google David Fincher's Halloween, Carpenter plus Fincher. It'll come up because it's been written about on a bunch of websites this week. Uh, highly recommend that one. Yeah, I would say anyone who's a fan of the original Halloween should check it out because it's really a cool edit. Yeah, it sure is. Yeah, so the Stranger sequel, they launched a new website where the... Like, the main page is just the trailer for the movie, but then if you click off of that, there's a bunch, there's, like, four or five pages where you can put in your information, like, your phone number and your email address, and they just send you, like, really, like, weird, creepy stuff, like, related to the movie, and it's, it's really something, it's just a really kind of out there website, really different, but I think people who are fans of the series should check it out and mm -hmm. sign up for all the stuff because it's, it's all pretty cool. So we got a trailer for this movie this week, too. The Strangers, Pray at Night. And 
I don't know. It looks it looks like it could be good, but also it looks like it could not be good. Because this movie holds up a lot. The first one, it's really scary. It's probably the scariest movie ever to me, hands down. So, like, I don't know. I hope they do this right. I think my biggest qualms with the trailer for the sequel is it almost looks like too much, like, action in mm-hmm. a way. Does that does that make sense? Does that yeah, sound, dude, like, that's, make sense that's, to you? Yeah, that's, like, exactly what I would say, too. And then um, the guy who directed it is the guy who directed 47 Meters Down. The writers of the first movie wrote this movie. So that's good. They have a good script to work with that's in the same vein. And I guess this one's inspired by true events, too. But, like, how many murders involving, like, a family who just goes around deciding to kill people who are home? You know? Like, how many are there, really, in in America? (laughs) I I think the whole inspired by true events thing is just... I mean, you can put that on on anything, and it'll you can just say that it was, and no one's really going to question you on it. So I think they just put that on horror movies in particular just to make them a little creepier. But I I mean, this is like probably they read a story about like a serial killer who walked into the wrong house or something. They're like, well, that's the movie related yeah. to this. So here's why I think this could be good, though. This isn't a movie that sat on a shelf as much as it seems like it probably is one. Because they did a set visit for it right around the time I went on a set visit for a different movie I don't think I can talk about. I think I went in July. I think it was around July, June or July, that they did a set visit for this. And they shot it in Kentucky. And it stars Christina Hendricks and Bailey Madison, Lewis Pullman, and Martin Henderson. And, you know, like a few of those are big names, especially Christina Hendricks. Yeah. um, I think that, you know, I don't really have any issues with the actors that they choose. But... How long has it been since the first one came out? Like, at, it's been at least what, like five years, ten, almost ten years ago. Almost ten years. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know. I'm I kind of just figured that it would if there were if they were ever gonna make a sequel to the first one, it would have come out sooner than this. I I don't know. Johannes Roberts is the guy directing it. That's the one thing that really worries me because I don't know. Forty seven meters down was fun, but it's like a goofy shark movie. You know, like you don't have a you don't have the same standards for that as you do a Strangers movie. Like, the this won't ruin the first movie for me, but I feel like it'll bring up a negative conversation. You know, like, I don't want any negative connotation related to the Strangers that doesn't have to be. Right, and this is definitely, you know, room for that, for contention, where if the sequel sucks so bad, then it's it might, you know, tarnish the good name of the first movie. But I don't know. I mean, I... I don't really want to put the wagon before the horse or however that saying is, but I, I think I'm just going to wait and see on this one. I don't want to watch any more trailers. I think I'm just going to probably check it out when it comes out. Same. And then, you know, if it does bad, he's got 48 meters down coming out. So Is that a real career, thing? Yeah. 2019. Oh, my God. Johannes Roberts <laughs> directing. <laughs> it's called 48 meters down. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Did you see that movie that uh, came out a, a little while ago where it's like, six feet down or whatever and it's like these girls get trapped under oh, a pool cover tw- 12 feet deep or something yeah 12 feet deep yeah and they're <laughs> stuck in a pool over over a weekend or something like yeah, an Olympic yeah. size swimming pool yeah and then like some guy tries to like murder them in the trailer i i heard the trailer just spoils the whole movie so 
Well, yeah. I also heard that they put that movie out on YouTube, like, originally. That was 48 meters down, or 47 meters down. It was oh, out was for that? a year before it came out in theaters. And then they were like, oh. oh, shit, we released this for free on YouTube. So, like, the week before it came out in theaters, they pulled it off YouTube. And just <laughs> no one knew it was on YouTube. And a bunch of people saw it, and it made a ton of money. That's hilarious. Yeah, you could rent it. It was free on YouTube. Like, there was literally no reason anyone... <laughs> should have paid to see that <laughs> but a lot of people did i i did i went and i saw it in the theaters i saw 47 years <laughs> down in theaters they trolled everyone yeah they got me good with that one all right so you got this next one this practical effects horror book yeah so there's a new book that comes out it's called uh, monster squad and oh, it's about yeah. i like know what the, this is yeah practical effects uh you know people who did practical effects for horror movies in like the 80s 90s and then like the some a few modern ones and it's it's like 440 some pages and there's pictures and interviews with some of these old school uh like practical effects horror guys and this seems like a really cool book i really want to check it out yeah the cover looks cool it kind of looks like michigan chillers cover yeah yeah i don't want to say goosebumps but it definitely looks like michigan chillers or yeah. American Chillers, if you're not from Michigan. <laughs> but That's really yeah, funny. I, I think there's probably a lot of really cool like anecdotes from the sets of like you know some of our favorite classic movies, and you know just to hear from these guys who really are. I mean, the '80s had some of the best like practical effects in any kind of movies. So I agree. People who that's, are like really masters, life. yeah, masters of their craft, talking about this stuff is probably very interesting. Yeah, oh, man, I. Yeah, because that's how I got into, like, horror movies, was I just watched, binged 80s movies in high school with, like, you and our, the rest of our friend group. Like, me and you were always into it, but nobody else was. And yeah. I was like, this is the good shit. <laughs> this is the good shit. Right. Like, I mean, we watched, like, uh, Return of the Living Dead. Yep. Oh, man. Like, so many movies. I, the I can't, Thing. Yeah, The Thing. We we watched Halloween a lot. Yeah, Halloween Texas on Chainsaw repeat. Massacre. Mm-hmm. Fright Night 1 and 2 like all yep. these movies that people older than us who are prominent in the horror community constantly talk about we also kind of grew up on them but just later which is kind of cool and I'm sure you know there's going to be interviews with people like Tom Savini and I you know, hope so yeah the stuff like that is what I'm really looking forward to reading about and checking out some behind the scenes pictures of I know uh, there's like some whoever the guy who did like the 1990 uh, It miniseries is in it for like some of his practical effects, which oh, cool. have not aged well, but no, I'm they sure didn't. those are I'm sure those are pretty fun to read about. Yeah, that's cool. I wonder if there's anything related to like Poltergeist because that had some cool practical. Oh yeah, Poltergeist probably. Well, I don't know. You can't talk to like Hooper, but whoever. Yeah, was, that like, sucks that it took him dying for Steven Spielberg to finally admit that he didn't even direct it. <laughs> <laughs> that's crazy. But yeah, the girl who or the lady who wrote it, Heather A. Wixon, I met her on the Winchester set visit. She was really nice. Yeah. So uh, hopefully everyone picks it up. It'd be a good uh, gift for Christmas for the horror fan in your your life. Yeah. Yeah. I was just gonna say it's on Bloody Disgusting's gift list, but like there's nothing else on it. So if you're if you're looking for another book. There's this one called um, Paperbacks from Hell by Grady Hendrix. He's the guy who wrote My Best Friend's Exorcism. And mm-hmm. that's that's a, like the same kind of idea. Like he, It's a book about like a bunch of those weird paperbacks that you see, like the Stephen King kind from the 70s and 80s. And okay. it, he'll give you like a, the, a high-res picture of the cover, a little description, and why he thinks it's cool. It's like a whole huh. book of those. So that's another one to check out if you're into this kind of stuff. Yeah, so... 
Next up, we got some, uh, we got some it, or no, we don't have it news. Well, it's kind of it news. A little bit it news. <laughs> so Gary Doberman, who uh, wrote a bunch of stuff. I actually got in a Twitter moment for this. I tweeted that Gary Doberman never stops writing. I'm like, he just writes and writes and writes. <laughs> he, it really feels like that, though, because I think he wrote The Conjuring, The Conjuring 2. Uh, Annabelle Creation. Annabelle and Annabelle Creation. He's writing The Nun. He wrote It. Like, this dude is a really good horror writer, and um, he's writing a movie adaptation of Are You Afraid of the Dark, which is a really cool show from when we were growing up. Did you ever watch this on TV? Yeah, I remember watching it. What was that on, like, Nickelodeon? It was on, like, Nick... It would be, like, not not Nick at Night, but it would be, like, the... Like, it was a Friday night show. Right. And it was, like, that time block where it was, like, in between where the Nick at Night shows would start, and Mm -hmm. it was, like, all the new episodes of, like, the like cartoons and stuff and then the last would be are you afraid of the dark and then it was nick at night yeah so like this goosebumps and eerie indiana were all shot in like the same area of canada so they all share the same child actors a lot of the same writers a lot of the same plots and Mm -hmm. while i really like goosebumps i think this one's the only really scary one this show was definitely like legitimately scary for yeah it freaked me out yeah, when you're if you're a young kid watching this, it it was legitimately terrifying. There's a lot of really creepy plot lines, and I, I'm I'm like really curious as to if they're gonna have the the effect where they drop that the sand on the fire and it like blows up into that big colorful mist. <laughs> you you <laughs> really... know they will. Oh my god, there's so much potential for this movie, dude. Like it could be an anthology. It could be like a trick or treat style thing. It could also be like it and. Uh, super eight and stranger things like you know where it's like a bunch of kids fighting against a monster like they could go macro with it and do a different movie every time with the same kids or they could do an anthology where the kids are telling the story and then you see the story play out i i think i would probably like an anthology the most Mm -hmm. if they just did like maybe four or five short shorts that were all cool like a creep show style or uh vhs something like that yeah totally i think that 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 could really be a cool setup for this movie and i'm you know it's obviously cool that we have such a great writer for the movie so that adds a lot of credit to this being good which i'm happy about yeah and gary doberman is a great writer obviously like there's no complaints there let's do right the more the stuff the more stuff this guy writes the better in my opinion i'm really i'm really excited for this like i'm not excited about the 90s coming back because the 90s suck but <laughs> this is like one thing from the 90s i would really really like to see come back this this can stay everything else has to go <laughs> next up on the list there's a new movie coming out and it has one of the sweet life and zach and cody twins the one that's not in riverdale dylan sprouse uh it's a movie called dismissed and it's a feature directorial debut of Benjamin Arfman, who directed Random Stop, which was a critically acclaimed South by Southwest short. This movie looks pretty good. I watched the trailer. I'm trying to get a screener for us, but it, it comes out November 21st. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to see the, the Sprouse boys are still, you know, trying to get get some work done well i, I know actually, i know the one who's in riverdale is like really acting but this one dylan like he was kind of off he, he like wasn't acting anymore yeah so I'm, I'm glad he's back yeah i'm glad to see him come back into the limelight and this movie actually does look pretty pretty interesting mm-hmm. and we're both big fans of riverdale so that that's a right pair that we like seeing in movies yeah maybe one day they can act together again oh <laughs> 
Oh man, <laughs> I, how much you want to bet they tried to get them into Fuller House? Uh, I bet that they wanted to get both of them into Riverdale. I bet there's oh, gonna yeah, be an episode yeah. with the two of them in Riverdale. That that would not surprise me at all. <laughs> like not Eventually. even a little bit. But yeah, the, so we'll we'll keep an eye on this movie and we will probably review it on the show for sure. I would say. Um, yeah, what's the release date on this? Uh, November twenty first. So okay, really so soon. soon. And it's VOD really in select like, theaters, so... Okay, so a couple days. Yeah, you can just rent it. Cool. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's that's the way, dude. I, I love going to the movie theater, don't get me wrong, but these rent-at-home VOD movies are just so good. I think that there's been a massive spike in quality of VOD movies recently. Yeah. That has really made me rethink the... Is it a genre, VOD? The, the like, format? I guess. <laughs> it, it's made you pay... I don't know. I don't want to say... Because I said a couple weeks ago that I felt like we were paying attention more now because of the podcast. But I went back and I've always done a good job at paying attention to everything that's coming out. Like, I know I text you about random ass indie movies all the time. Right. Yeah. But there definitely are way more movies now. It feels like just this year, like 2017 has just blown up. Like, I went yeah. back and looked and it's just... There's an insanely inflated number of horror movies coming out in vod this year yeah and a lot of them are good we've reviewed plenty of vod movies in the you know in our last eight weeks and a lot of them were pretty good i mean some of them aren't good obviously but a lot of them were i mean they don't look like they're you know like a poor quality movie in any way a, a vod movie is still looks as good as like a big budget movie now which blows my mind yeah definitely like we we sometimes point out the budget but i feel like that's a very uncommon complaint now like especially considering all the movies we've seen in the past few years like since we really started getting into these like indie horror movies uh they've gotten a lot better in my opinion yeah for sure i remember we used to watch some of the you know bottom of the barrel horror movies and now i mean you can find a bad one but usually there's at least one thing to come out of it that you can kind of praise for most of them yeah, so um, that one's called Dismissed, and you can rent it on iTunes November 21st, which I definitely will. I can't... Some of these PR companies, or, like, some of these studios are just so hard to get a hold of. Like, <laughs> once you actually get through to someone, because they have a general contact email, but most of them use Squarespace just like we do. And if yeah. you go to our contact page, it, it's like a form you fill out, and that must get sent into, like, spam folders or something, because... At first, I thought it was, like, just because we're kind of a smaller podcast, you know, and, like, they've got other priorities. But once I actually get a hold of someone, they are, like, so stoked that we want to talk about their movies. So, like, it's just, it's hard to get a hold of these people. But I'm trying to get this one a little early for us. Yeah. So, hopefully, maybe we'll talk about it next week, maybe the week after. Yeah. So, um, next up is a really quick one. Uh, Jurassic World's trailer, the the sequel to Jurassic World, uh, is attached to The Last Jedi, and it's called Jurassic World Falling Kingdom, which is a sick title. I love that. <laughs> Jeff Goldblum's coming back for it. Like, I love Jurassic World. Like, the script and the dialogue was awful at times, but it nailed that feeling that Jurassic Park gave you back in the day, I feel. Yeah. A lot. Like, we saw this movie four times, I think. Yeah, and it did... I mean, it felt like Jurassic Park, but just on a larger scale, really, mm-hmm. which... I mean, that's what a sequel usually is for, to take the ideas of the original and then build them up bigger and better than before. And I think it, it nailed that feeling really well. So 
Yeah. I'm interested to see what they do with the Fallen Kingdom name Such attached a cool to it. Name. What exactly is that going to entail? Probably. It's so 80s. Like, I love right. it. I just love it. It's so good. Yeah, this I, is... Some... I'm so excited. One to look forward to. I'm sure <laughs> they don't need us to promote it because the last movie made it <laughs> quadrillion dollars, so they don't need us to talk about it. Yeah. But uh, I, I'm excited for it. And then yeah, I just Jurassic Outpost is the one who reported this. And that site, I used to read that when I was a kid, and I'm so glad that they are still around because like I, I just imagine that you know the guy who owns it had his hand on like this giant lever that shuts off a website that totally exists <laughs> and then he's like well there's just no more Jurassic World news and then that one <laughs> teaser dropped like that second and he's like fire everything back up it's time to get Jurassic Outpost back on business like back on the rails baby <laughs> like 50 80s computers like whirring back to life dust kicking out the back of them just... <laughs> he's like looks directly at the camera that isn't there and is like hold on to your butts <laughs> cigarette falls out of his mouth yeah so I'm, I'm really happy that that site's still around moral of the yeah. story uh so next up we have the rampage movie the trailer dropped this week did you even know this was coming out no i had no idea what this was i didn't either it's from the <laughs> video game which is a really fun arcade game i'll give them yeah. that uh and <laughs> I guess this year is like the one of the big years for the comeback of video game movies because we're getting, well, Tomb Raider isn't this year, but we got the trailer for that. And that looks like the game. Yeah, new Jumanji movie. That looks terrible. Looks terrible. We have this Castlevania rampage. was really good, and they're making a Contra show for Netflix. Huh, that could be interesting. Yeah, Castlevania was cool. So, I mean, if... Those are any indication of what this is going to be. The trailer is pretty fun. I think it's probably going to, at the very least, be a fun watch. Yeah, did you notice that? Oh, wait. So let's talk about the um, the premise here. So Dwayne The Rock Johnson, he is an anti-poacher squad boy. He, like, goes out and kills poachers or whatever. And he is best friends with a gorilla. And um, then the government takes a gorilla, a crocodile, and a wolf and genetically modifies them so they grow really big and destroy a city but the rock teams up with his gorilla friend to kill the other monsters so right, that's the like, plot how is that not the most metal plot you've ever heard for a movie in your life yeah the the, the trailer looks i'd say about on par with like the michael bay ninja turtles or a transformer movie you know like it felt like that to me but i also noticed and i know other people did too the CGI model for the gorilla is the abominable snowman, like, exact from Goosebumps. Yeah, I did notice that I, when I saw the thumbnail, <laughs> I was like, wait, so is this, like, Rampage, the sequel to the Goosebumps movie or something? Because it, <laughs> it is 100% identical to that, and it's so weird. Yeah, like, I don't know if the same company did the effects or whatever, but... <laughs> There's a lot of reuse of assets going on, I guess, in Hollywood right now. Hollywood's just in a weird spot. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm glad you noticed that, too. I know a lot of other people did, but, like, I don't know. I just felt like it could have been a conspiracy, but I feel like enough people have brought it up now where I'm like, okay, this is a thing. It's definitely real because you can look at it side by side, and it is identical. It is not even close to a different model. It, it's... It, 
that's just so weird. Are they just like hoping people didn't see goosebumps and they're gonna walk into this and just not acknowledge it or what? <laughs> I don't know, man. <laughs> Maybe they'll change it now that everyone's calling them out for it. <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Uh, do you know? Do you know when it comes out? When's the movie out? Oh, April twentieth. Like I said, I think it, at the very least it'll be fun. Yeah. Okay, I'm fine with that. I'm on board with the fun. <laughs> so, we got two more stories. Next up, pour one out for the Chiller TV channel, which I guess has been around for 10 years, which is kind of weird. Um, so, this is what NBC Universal replaced Fearnet with. And it is a terrible. it was a terrible replacement, not going to lie. But they did re-air um, Freddy's Nightmares for a little bit, which was cool. Oh, that's kind of fun. Yeah, some guy taped the whole thing and then sold DVDs on eBay of his taping. So <laughs> I got one of those. Hell yeah. Oh, did you? Yeah, it's on my shelf. <laughs> I was like, I need this. Because there's no other way to get that show. Because they yeah. never released it. And the, the like rights are in total limbo. Um, they're taking the like original content and dividing it up between sci-fi. And they put some... I know Chiller... Or, if you go on Netflix, Slasher is uh, a Netflix original now. So Netflix must have bought Slasher, which I, I heard a lot of people kind of like Slasher. Uh, but yeah, it's just, it's dead. Yeah. Uh, one, I noticed that uh, sci-fi recently has been a lot better about showing whole, old horror movies instead of their like new original content did you have you noticed that at all i don't i don't have cable but i just got my free trial going for the youtube tv thing and i i noticed that this past week but i didn't know if it was just like an event or something i remember in like october they were playing double features of uh nightmare on elm street they were doing like dream warrior and uh like parts three and four together that's awesome i like they were doing they're doing like double features of of a bunch of like classic. It was really like the better version of uh, AMC's Fear Fest since that went down the drain so hard the past few years. It oh was, yeah, how was, was it this year? I can't even see what's in it because I'm blocked by them. I haven't looked. I I didn't pay attention to it at all because Sci-Fi was doing it so good that I and I know that they've been making the you know that the AMC's version shorter and shorter every year. It was a week it was this a, year. Yeah, remember when it was 30 days? Yeah, that was... was, Oh, they used to play, like, Halloween on loop. Like, all of the Halloween movies in a row for, like, four days. Yeah. That's where I... That's the first place I saw the people under the stairs. Oh, that movie is a classic. (laughs) Movie's nuts. And then this year, I know they played a ton of Child's Play movies. They showed Curse of... Cult of Chucky, which, like, why would you put anyone through that? Yeah, I forgot. (laughs) They did show Cult of Chucky. I remember I I turned on one day, and it was, like... Child's Play 2, and then Cult of Chucky. Like, on a <laughs> they loop. skipped three? It I mean, was, I guess they just, did you a favor. Yeah, it was just two and the newest one, which was very bizarre. Yeah. I, they did a week of The Walking Dead, which oh. I'm a Walking Dead fan, and that's fucking stupid. And they did a week of Chucky, and then I guess they aired a bunch of Halloween movies on Halloween. And I remember a couple years ago they did all the Friday the 13th and that was the big focus which like how tone deaf are you to what Friday the 13th is? <laughs> I know you stand by your summer movies. The Friday that's the 13th series is. is a summer movie that should Who not the be fuck shown on Halloween. Who thinks that's a Halloween movie? 
Get a life. Get a life. Seriously. <laughs> Learn your seasons. Like, Halloween can have fall. And then when you're in the summer, you want to watch a horror movie? You got Friday the 13th. There's like yeah. eight or nine of them. They'll get you through the entire summer. Right. You can watch one a week. And then summer's <laughs> over. But yeah, it, it is sad, though, to see a channel that was focused on horror to be shut down. Yeah. Because, I mean, the more of them, more of those there are, the better, sort of. But, I mean, if it, if it wasn't really doing anything in massive, you know, quality, then why keep it around? Yeah, and I'll let you all in on a hot tip. Shudder.tv is a looping free horror channel that you can go to on a lot of devices, including the internet browser, and it'll just loop all the movies on Shudder. And they pick, they do like their best ones that people watch. So if you're really dying for like not being able to choose the programming, because there is novelty in that, just throw up Shudder.tv. A lot of sites aren't writing about that because in case like you haven't noticed, a lot of these bigger horror sites publish movies. So they're kind of like competing with Shudder. So like no one will report that. But yeah, Shudder.tv is a looping 24 hour horror channel. Yeah, and it's really, really cool. Curated lists and all kinds of cool stuff. Yeah, and then if you like it, you can pay five bucks a month and get VOD access to all the stuff they have. So there's our shutter plug. Yeah, which is also worth it. Sponsor us. And <laughs> so next up, last news story we got here is that Mayhem. This is, this is like, I would have talked about this either way because I love Mayhem. Um, but it's getting a 4K Blu-ray in December. And I think that's really cool that like this indie horror movie is getting a 4k blu-ray because not a lot do it's coming out the day after christmas yeah i haven't seen uh even a lot of like mainstream 4k blu-rays so it's interesting that this Tell me about got it. a release yeah 4k blu-rays are awesome yeah i have a xbox one s so i can i can watch them but i haven't i haven't actually purchased one yet they're pretty cool and you, you just got a 4k tv right yeah yeah i'd recommend so- kong skull island that one's pretty I, good. I thought that movie was pretty criminally underrated. Yeah, me too. If you're rating Jurassic Park well or Jurassic World well and not rating Kong Skull Island well, because they're basically like good in the same ways and bad in the same ways, you got to figure some stuff out. Yeah, but that it, it is cool to see an indie movie get a 4K Blu-ray release. It seems kind of strange, but it's it's nice to see. I'm that fine they with got, it. I'm gonna buy it. Yeah, I'll I'll probably check it out too. Yeah, and then so, um, speaking of mayhem. The boys over at ModernHorrors.com talked about Mayhem on their podcast this week, and they centered their entire review and thought process on contrasting our thoughts. <laughs> the entire they shouted us out and everything, but they were like, "Yeah, I've heard that. I've heard from other people, including Jimmy Champagne. It's like one of the best movies of the year." And I did not think so. Here's why. And it was not in a mean way. It was just funny that like. They didn't. They weren't as hot on it as we were, and then they used our review as like the base point to build off of. Yeah, which <laughs> it's flattering. It's yeah. cool to. I mean, yeah, we don't need everyone to do agree with us. Yeah, I mean, obviously, yeah, these two old men just sitting around <laughs> talking shit about us youngins. You know, that's how I it mean, goes. Like we say, we're not the BLN doll. People can have other opinions than us. They can be wrong too. Yeah, it's easy to punch down modern horrors. Think about that. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, 
But yeah, you can get Mayhem the Day After Christmas on 4K Blu-ray. And in case you couldn't tell, this is all joke. We really like the guys at Modern Horrors. They're really cool. Yeah. And it was very nice of them to give us a shout out like yeah, that. Yeah, that was really cool. <laughs> Even though they're wrong. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back with segment two. Okay, so we're back from our quick break, and before we get into our two movies we're going to talk about today, we have another creature feature, and this one was brought to us by George, so I'll let you handle this. Yeah, so I am bringing Mr. Nightmare. His Twitter handle is Mista, like M-I-S-T-A underscore Nightmare, and he hasn't put out a video in a while, like since I think August, but he does... Wow, has it really been that long? I, I think so, yeah. He does narrated scary stories on youtube usually like three or four stories in a video and they're all follow usually like one specific theme for the whole thing and they're actually pretty creepy i remember one night you and i were just listening to them and just like getting pretty scared oh my god yeah that was terrifying (laughs) we we found them because we were like really drunk and we wanted to listen to 911 calls because they're terrifying and we were at my aunt and uncle's like giant house on a lake and we were the only people there and we were in their creepy basement and we wanted to get spooked out and then somehow googling 911 calls brought us to him and it was just magic since then so we've been listening for two years yeah and they, they are like genuinely creepy and they do really you know hit the spot if you're looking for a creepy narrated story and so I highly recommend checking out Mr. Nightmare on YouTube yeah, and following and him on Twitter. alert, guys. He uploaded two days ago. Oh, Three shit. scary true dog-sitting horror stories. So if you want to poop your pants, go to YouTube.com and search Mr. Nightmare. So we have two movies to talk about this week. And the first one is Stegman is Dead. Uh, I watched it, obviously. But, George, I feel like this one's connected to you now at, yes. at the blood level. So I'll let <laughs> you talk about this one. Yeah, so Stegman is Dead is... Uh, sort of a heist crime movie. It's also got some comedic elements, and it's about a guy, Gus, who is played by Michael Eklund, and he is a criminal that's sort of down on his luck, Mm -hmm. and he gets pulled in, he gets pulled back into the crime world by his old buddy Don, because there's some incriminating evidence that this porn director named Stegman has that all of these people are trying to get, and the movie kind of centers around all these people fighting over getting these tapes that are incriminating all these different criminals from the porn director, Stegman. And yeah. I thought it was pretty fun. What'd you think? I thought it was fun, too. I I, I had a lot of fun watching it. I laughed a lot, because it, it does go for... At first, you're like kind of iffy on whether or not it's trying to be funny, you know? Because right. uh, there's, there's so many jokes in this movie, and... I'd say they land about 70% of the time, which is good, you know, because mm-hmm. with how many there are. And once you realize that it is trying to be a more, like, dark comedy, kind of in the same vein as Fargo, I would say, that's when it starts to be more fun. Yeah. Uh, when I was interviewing the director, David Hyde, uh, one of the things that I noticed that I thought it was very uh, Tarantino-inspired. because. Oh, okay. There's like a lot of, uh, you know, there's like a strong female character 
and then there's a bunch of criminals that are kind of like lovably stupid. Yeah, totally. And which is very Tarantino. And he actually brought it up before I said it, which was kind of funny. Uh, that you know, he was like, you know, I was really taking a lot from like Tarantino. So it's kind of that vein, but a little mm-hmm. more lighthearted than a Tarantino movie. There's not a bunch of gore and blood. It's kind of like a. It's kind of like if Tarantino directed an episode of Fargo. Yeah, that that totally feels accurate. And then the soundtrack is really good. Like, there's a lot of music. Like, a lot of the um, action, like, when when people are getting punched and stuff, it's synced up with the music. And the music is kind of, like, Pink Panther-y, jazzy type stuff. Yeah. So there would be, like, a big, like, uh, like big, like, bam, when people get, like, hit and stuff. And that's kind of cool. The fight choreography is also pretty good. And... Gus is just a likable character, I think. I liked him a lot. Yeah, one of the things about Gus's character that's kind of interesting that I talked to the director about also is that he, him and his wife have kind of a weird dynamic where Mm -hmm. he is a criminal, but he kind of sucks at it. And his wife isn't ashamed that he's a criminal. She's ashamed of him because he's a bad criminal. And she wishes that he was better at being a bad guy, which is kind of funny. (laughs) And she totally looks like Amy Schumer. Which is kind of yeah. weird. Yeah. And uh, I also they have a daughter, uh, Angela, who is really steals like every scene she's in, I thought. Yeah, because like she's, it's kind of like that classic kid thing where the kid knows everything and is smarter than everyone in the movie. But like usually in these movies where that happens, the kid, no one knows how smart the kid is. But uh, Gus and, you know, Angela are on the same wavelength. And they get it. And then even the mom doesn't really understand how smart their daughter is. So that's kind of cool. Like, the interactions between Gus and Angela are great. Yeah, all that works really well. Uh, I thought that all the characters were pretty fun and likable to watch. Um, I thought the setting was kind of cool. It's like almost like a Midwest, like, winter town. They shot it in, not Toronto, Winnipeg, I think. Okay. Yeah, it definitely feels Canadian, but it yeah. also it had that it had like a Chicago suburb feel. Yeah. So it just kind of feels like upper end, like suburb area, I guess, in the winter. Yeah, and then I will say that, like, in the same vein as Bad Match, it does feel a little cheap. You know, like you can tell that this is an indie movie, but I feel like it overcomes that with just everyone having fun. Like, it's just a good time to watch this movie. Yeah, I think there's a lot of charm for a lot of the characters. Uh, Sergey was hilarious, I thought. Yeah, he was really cool. I liked him. And uh, the the idea of like breaking into a porn director's mansion, I just think is hilarious on its own. And there's like this this character I want to say, even though it's inanimate, of a giant octopus right when you go in, <laughs> and that thing is nuts. It's really funny. Like it's goofy yeah. and it keeps coming into the plot, and they do some really good stuff with that. Yeah, like, when I was talking to David, I said that whenever it's on the screen, it was the only thing I could look at, because it's just, it just completely takes all of your attention whenever it's on screen, because it's so ridiculous. Because, like, no one acknowledges how fucking weird it is in the entire movie. Like, they interact with it, they talk about it, but they're never like, this is bizarre. Like, it's just weird. Yeah, it's it's actually a (laughs) 10-foot tall octopus model that they had to build. (laughs) <laughs> and they had to demo it because they couldn't get it out of the house after the movie was done. <laughs> oh my god, I don't want to talk about that more because I want to like, I want people to hear this from him. But like, yeah. that's hilarious. But there's a lot of a lot of really cool behind the scenes stuff I got out of David. He was a great interview. 
had a lot of nice things to say about the movie. He's a really cool guy, and you guys should definitely check out Segment Instead. Yeah, and we, we locked down the Skype interview over Windows. <laughs> we had it nailed down on Mac, but Windows was giving us problems. But we figured it out. It sounds great. Uh, this, this is an interview. I think the Joe Lynch one was, was great, but I think Joe Lynch was my best interview, but this is definitely your best interview. Yeah, I mean, it's like better than one other interview, so it's not a huge accomplishment, but it's good. It's good. Yeah, so like we both like this movie. You got you kind of got to put on the indie rose-colored glasses a little bit with it. Like you know, you can't go in scrutinizing every detail for a high I don't want to say I'm not trying to say high quality. I want to say like high budget or like high production value. It's just like it's a lot of fun. It's goofy. It's it's kind of a good thriller and the characters are what saved it for me, I think. I think yeah. it could have really been going the other way in terms of how good it is. It, it feels like Dead Shack. Yeah, it definitely shows its budget at times, but yeah. it also makes up for it with other things in the movie mm-hmm. where, I, I don't know, I, I just really liked it. I thought that, I think people should check it out. Yeah, for every shortcoming, there's like three good things that make up for it. Yeah. All right, so Sweet Virginia is stars our boy Joe Barenthal, as you just said. Or John Barenthal. And <laughs> you always call him Joe Barenthal. I do call him Joe. Every time I want to call him Joe. But <laughs> he looks like wrong. a Joe. He looks like a Joe. So he is a hotel owner in they didn't really specify where it was, but it's a northern city and he's from Virginia. Yeah, it's not Virginia. Because he's like talking about when he talks about Virginia in the movie, he always talks about it as if he's not there. Right, he calls it the South as if he's not there anymore. So it's some northern state. Like Pennsylvania, and, maybe? Yeah, probably something like that. Yeah. And so he he owns a hotel. He used to be a bull rider. And it's it physically deformed him in some way, where he kind of walks with a limp and he's injured through most of the movie. Mm-hmm. Just from, like, old, uh, you know, old events of being on a bull since i'm sure that's a very dangerous job (laughs) (laughs) totally and uh this the movie opens with this killer uh elwood who shows up and he murders three people he's a contract killer so he's paid to murder these three people and uh lila is played by imogen poots and she paid she's great yeah she paid him to kill her boyfriend and she is it's basically a struggle for her to get the money to pay Elwood, and then Sam, played by John Barenthal, kind of just gets mixed up in the mix by accident, pretty much, because the killer, Elwood, is staying at his hotel. Yeah, and then, so spoiler alert, I don't think either of us really like them this movie that much. All of this info that George just dropped on you is given to you in, like, the first ten minutes, and the plot doesn't really advance until the end of the movie. But it's almost, I think it's over an hour and a half. It's yeah, just it's, so long. It's like an hour and 33 minutes or something. Like you said, you get all this information pretty much straight away, and then they just... I think that they should have had more action scenes within the movie spliced in periodically, because mm-hmm. a lot of it just feels like you're sitting around bored. Like, I was very bored watching most of this movie. Yeah, and they cut to these dream sequence flashbacks of bull riding a lot, but they never address it. Like, they're like... They introduce the fact that Joe, I'm going to call him Joe Bernthal. John <laughs> Bernthal, they introduced that his character was a bull rider at some point, Sam. And that something went wrong and he doesn't do it anymore, but he was going to be like big time. And that's it. Then they reference the fact 
that he dreams about being a bull rider a lot, but nothing other than that. There's a lot of weird love triangle subplots in this that just mess the whole thing up, and a lot of them don't serve the plot in any way. Imogen Poots is really good. She's from Green Room. I know a lot of people like her in that. You kind of understand, it's it's her character is the best, and they barely focus on her at all, which is kind of a problem. When she's yeah, kind I, of the main character. Yeah, I mean, the plot revolves on her more than anybody else, and there's like a point in the movie where it just drops off and she's not in it until the very end. Do you think that was really weird? Because I thought that was yeah, bizarre. Yeah, she just goes away. Like, and there's all this, like, little bickering and dumb little stupid shit that the people interact with each other around that does nothing for the plot. Elwood, played by Christopher Abbott. Christopher Abbott in this one feels like he's doing his best Shia LaBeouf impersonation. Like, he's off. Also, one of the big issues I had was I was so confused by the relationships of between all the characters. Where, like, Imogen Poots is hanging out with uh Bernadette who's like Sam's girlfriend in the movie and I don't know why is and she married or is her husband dead her I think her husband okay so I think uh Imogen Poot's husband and her husband and then the restaurant owner the three oh. guys murdered in the beginning of the movie but they never talk about how her husband and Imogen Poots' husband are related in any way, and why these two characters would be hanging out. Because it, 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 I was very confused by why these, like, why different people were interacting, and what was, like, the point of it. It, it really kind of threw me off through most of the movie. Yeah, and if her husband, I didn't realize, I didn't connect that her husband might have died at the beginning, but she acts like he's still alive, and she always acts like she's cheating on him. And John yeah. Bernthal is, like, reluctant to sleep over sometimes, and, like... The only thing that I was thinking was and i mean i have to speculate because i have no idea what the relationship is between any of these characters <laughs> i think that john Bern john bernthal's character his brother was bernadette's husband and so he oh. feels guilty because he's like taking his brother's wife i could see that i mean i don't know i just feel like they utilize their time so poorly in this movie that like i don't I don't even want to bother trying to piece it together. You know, it's like that where it's just like, you didn't do your job in showing me the plot well. It, it's a lot of telling instead of showing in this movie. And it's just boring. That's the yeah, big I, problem with it. It's just boring. Yeah, I was pretty bored through most of it. And like, uh, I really like It Follows. And that's a movie that is commonly called boring by a lot of people. But I think the reason it's not boring is because the plot is so well laid out and so easy to latch onto and follow. And I feel like well, this movie went for the same kind of feeling, but did a really bad job executing it. Well, in It Follows, the whole movie, you feel like it's building towards something. Like, it's getting bigger and bigger as it goes. And in this mm -hmm. movie, you, it just feels stagnant. It feels like there's a peak in the beginning where we get all the information, and then it sits at a plateau till the very end and nothing happens so right now you can rent sweet virginia uh i wouldn't recommend it especially with the punisher out you should just go watch that but george can you fill us in on the release schedule here of stegman is dead yeah so stegman is dead is doing screenings in canada right now in select theaters and i believe there's a the vod release is scheduled for early december uh, I can't believe we made it eight episodes. I'm going to keep saying it at the end of every single one. <laughs> I'm really happy that we have a lot to talk about 
between uh, Halloween and Christmas. I felt like we were going to run a little dry here, and we haven't had a dry week yet, so that's pretty cool. Yeah, so keep our fingers crossed, and hopefully we keep the horror news rolling week over week. Yeah, so if you want to follow me, I'm on Twitter and Instagram and everything at Jimmy Champagne. And if you want to follow George, he's George Frizzard on everything. Uh, you want you want to take us home here? Yeah, so be sure to come back next week for more horror news and reviews, and you never know who might be listening. Alright, hello everyone. It is me, George Frizzard, and I am here today with David Hyde, the director of the new movie, Stegman is Dead. Hey David, what's going on? Hey George, I am great. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So, uh, I actually had a lot of fun watching this movie. I just watched it last night, and uh, it's it's a pretty unique little uh, heist movie. (laughs) Sorry, say that again? Uh, It's a pretty unique uh, like heist movie. Yeah, totally. Uh, honestly, I'm glad you appreciate it and like it. You know, it's uh, we had really an enormous amount of fun writing it and creating it, and um, it comes from a place uh, that we really loved, which was like those '90s Tarantino-oriented crime, Elmore Leonard-oriented uh, paper sort of stories, obviously, and we really um, had fun updating it, and turning it into sort of more uh, a family drama type thing. Um, and it's really interesting because the film's just breaking out right now and it's in theaters for the first time today and, you know, I'm getting some great reviews and then we're getting some like, oh, you're so derivative review. <laughs> and so thanks man for, uh, you know, making this interview going to be fun because if you like it, it'll be easier for me. Right. <laughs> if you were like trying to tell me like, you know, why are you doing something everybody else has already done? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, that's funny you bring up Tarantino because... That was one of my questions. Actually, I had prepared for you while watching it. I've kind of, I definitely got that vibe from it, where there's, you know, kind of a ragtag group of, uh, like, kind of heroes that are also villains, anti-heroes that are, you know, they're criminals, but you you end up liking them, and uh, you know, you have the the kind of badass character in uh, Evie, who's kind of in the vein of like an Uma Thurman or a Lucy Liu. So, it, you said that you know Tarantino is definitely a major influence, and it really does show in the movie. Yeah, no, absolutely. Listen, there's a certain amount of homage to him that is um, fully open-handed. And, you know, I mean, who doesn't love Quentin Tarantino? Right. (laughs) Uh, But nonetheless, I think this is a, you know, he inspired uh, a whole sort of realm of thinking. In fact, what he just did was he embodied um, the kind of crime stories that Elmore Laird had been writing for decades before him, obviously. And... um, we have just taken that another step. Like the underground uh, foundations of this story are based in the same kinds of things that Tarantino may have found interesting. Uh, but we think that, or not, you know, what I really was interested in doing was taking those uh, outland, outlander type characters and then showing the other side of them, uh, which is, you know, the side that we get to see when they're not actually committing crimes. And that's, you know, these kinds of characters and in their inner lives. Um, sort of the portions of the movies that you never get to see made in between their giant heists. What actually, what do these guys do? And so that's where this story starts. Uh, and that's what we wanted to set it aside 
from the other types of projects that are Tarantino oriented um, by doing so, you know? Yeah. And uh, one aspect that really shines through in that way is uh, the role of Angela, who is Gus, who I guess is like the main character's child. And she, you know, it's usually it's hard to have a good child actor in a movie. And she really does add a lot of depth to the Gus character and make it interesting to see really both sides of the coin. So how did you find a child actor that was that good to play the daughter? Oh my god, I'm so glad you asked that, and I'm so glad that it shines through, and I knew, obviously, that it would, uh, but I'm just so happy to hear people's first blush, first blush impressions, um, you know, that they thought that she was as good as I did, and so I'm glad you've asked that question, because obviously this was one of the biggest bones of contention about financing this film. Um, you know, Stegman is Dead is a fairly low-budget movie. But it's still right in the realm of about $1.5 million, uh, which is you know a lot more than $50,000, $100,000, a lot more than the half-million-dollar low-budget films that are getting made. In fact, nowadays, near 2017, $1.5 million is really kind of like a medium-budget film. Um, I was a first-time feature film director, and I had come forward with this script that had a lead that was a six-year-old kid alongside our other leads, which were like Michael Ironside and Michael Eklund. So it was really a very, very difficult thing to do to convince people that we could establish this relationship between the father and daughter as authentic uh, at the same time as, you know, making the crime part of the story come forward and be authentic as well. Uh, so we just started off as being a very, very tough thing to do. And I went into casting with a whole bunch of professional children actors. And the, it turns out that, like, you know, it, no big surprise now that I'm exposed to it, but uh, I wasn't really expecting it in the beginning. But child actors are extraordinarily ambitious and have what's been called, you know, helicopter parents. Right. <laughs> and, yeah. Many of those kid actors under the age of 10 are fully programmed to be acting. And we get that hit of uh, what they feel like when you watch, you know, Nickelodeon shows or when you watch Disney shows. Like all of the kids that came to the table for my casting at Stegman is Dead came with that kind of child energy, like the big saucer eyes and the fall in love with me face and the preconditioning that their parents had put on them as to how to sell themselves as beautiful, wonderful, loving children. And that was really not what we were looking for in this movie. It was something really outside of that set because we know we needed a fresh tone and we know we needed something really fully authentic and not something that Walt Disney or Nickelodeon had already sort of trampled on as the way that child actors were going to be perceived. So I had a bunch of great kids that were very, very strong. Uh, and the casting director, whose name was Jim Heber, kept on bringing me the same kids over and over, only because that was what, at, was, at, that was, what at, was at our disposal at the time. And once we had gone through a whole bunch of them, I just said to him, what are we going to do? Like, we're stuck with the same kind of person over and over again. And then he sat down with me. Uh, the casting director and I sat down together and he said, listen, David, I'm going to take a risk on this. But my brother's daughter has done two TV commercials. She's never really acted and she's certainly never memorized, you know, 20 pages worth of dialogue. She is six years old, but I think she's extraordinarily talented. And I said, are you kidding me, Jim? <laughs> Bring her and let's take a look because the casting director really knows whether or not a person can make it. And uh, he did bring her, and she was absolutely fantastic. And I had to fight tooth and nail to cast a totally unprofessional actor who had never done it before, 
but we went down that risky path, and I'm so happy to say that it worked, and we didn't get uh, in trouble, and she didn't cry, and she didn't snap under the pressure, and she made it through. I think she had uh, 11 full days of shooting, and you know, six-year-olds don't last 10 hours. You right. know, they're <laughs> 45 minutes. So I'm so proud of the risk that we took because we really did get something great. And, uh, you know, every once in a while, that kind of thing pays off. Yeah, I'm extremely surprised to hear that that was her first big acting role because she really knocked it out of the park when she was uh, in all of her scenes, really. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, you know, is that sometimes people's first time is always their best, you know. And then you, you you have to, you know, your first time, you're for real and you're authentic and you're in it. And then the second time around, you're trying too hard. And the third time around, you're trying even harder. And it takes four or five more steps down the road until you can get back to the place where you were the very first time you did something. Right. So uh, going back to what you said uh, like a few minutes ago about this being kind of a medium budget film. So with this being a movie that's kind of stylized where there's, you know, like big text for the characters' names and the story's kind of told in like a reverse order and just like the main, you know, it being a very stylized movie, what are the kind of issues that come about that? What were the challenges in making a movie like that on a medium budget? Uh, you know, there's two ways to answer that question. I mean, the first way is just obviously um, money. When you enter into a medium budget project, um, you're expected to make money. It's like we've spent a certain amount of money and we want to return. It's the film business for a reason. It's not, you know, the film art. It's not like we hope to make money. It's like, David, you must provide us with a film that actually makes over a million and a half dollars back. So we want our investment plus a profit. And um, that's a very difficult thing to do at a lower price point. It's also a very difficult thing to do when you've got a script like Stegman, which is really individual and uh, is offbeat. And it's not really designed to be directly a commercial project. Uh, so that was one of the biggest challenges, which is convincing investors that, you know what, I can do this uh, and we can do it uh, in a way that hasn't been done before. It's easier to convince someone to buy a premise like that when you're spending a lot less money than a million and a half bucks. Right. Yeah. Um, the other thing, that the other uh, trick about shooting a medium budget film is you, it needs. There's a lot of pressure to shoot it in a more conservative way. So you know, you'll notice like there's a couple of points in segment. I, I was a stills photographer and I graduated from art school and then I went into music videos. And I was very lucky to have directed a huge amount. You know, I've directed over 30 music videos and I um, music videos as give you this opportunity to be very very creative visually. Uh, and I brought a lot of that technique to this film. When you're spending a, a million and a half dollars, people want you to execute things in a simpler way so that there is no risk in the execution. And that way, it's much more commercially viable and safer. And I was afforded the opportunity to still get uh, risky in terms of the way I photographed this film now and again. Uh, for instance, you'll notice uh, at the end when the character Kruger finally comes into the house and discovers where Stegman is. Uh, Kruger's like a mystical, killer, fantastical character. He's a cleaner personality who comes in and takes care of all business. And I um, wanted to exemplify that part of his character's personality visually 
by using a lock-off and having him float through the basement toward Stegman's um, lock-up room, uh, you know, in various positions. And it was kind of an artful and more bizarre way to have Kruger travel through the house. And uh, we shot it, and I was hoping it would make it through the edit uh, because, you know, these things can end up on the cutting room floor. It didn't, and people let me get away with it. And I think it really helps the film become what it is. And if I had been able to do that a few more times, then we would have uh, had something that was really kind of interesting to watch. So it's a give and a take, you know. It's like firstly you got to design a film that is going to make money, and secondly, you uh, you have to do it in a way that people will trust you enough, um, especially on your first time out. You know, it's tough to sell folks more risky approaches to to delivering regular narrative stories. Right. Um, I'm glad you brought up Kruger because uh, this being a, a horror podcast primarily. Uh, and his original entrance into the movie, you know, he's being told to burn everything down. It was that an yeah. homage in any way to Freddy Krueger? <laughs> That's funny you bring that up. It's not really, no. Uh, you know, the they do share their name, but <laughs> it's a weird coincidence, um, and there isn't really any Kruger, any Freddy Krueger connection at all. Um, I actually considered, after having written the script, building more of that in, but then I just realized that that this that starts to sort of I just didn't want to do it. I wasn't feeling it. So the answer is pretty straight up no. No, <laughs> we we didn't intend it. You know, it kind of comes off that way, but that wasn't intentional. And uh, I, I was just kind of looking into it a, a bit too much, I guess. <laughs> no, but that's the beautiful thing about most films. And when you read um, criticism of almost all of the great filmmakers, I guess Scorsese or Spielberg, uh, many many film reviewers are able to put so much more onto a film than the director ever intended. And that's the amazing and beautiful thing about filmmaking or poetry or literature or anything that's interpretive is that there are many means that can be gleaned. And just because the original person didn't intend, the original creator didn't intend for them to be there doesn't mean they're not there. Right. Um, so, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, one other interesting thing about this movie is, uh, I mentioned it a little bit earlier, the story being told in like almost a reverse order, and you're kind of learning the pieces of the story as it unfolds. What yeah. what kind of influenced you to tell the story in kind of a asymmetrical way? Yeah, I really love a good yarn. I mean, you know, when you watch um, the... Uh, um, <laughs> I forgot the name. What are those? Uh, what are the George Clooney heist films again? The what Ocean's Ocean's films. Right. If you watch the Ocean's Eleven's heist films, those are very very simple construct narratively. The idea is a group of men are trying to steal a bunch of money from the basement of a casino. Like that's the entire premise of all of the Ocean Eleven's films. But you watch those movies; they all go over 120 minutes, and they all have enormous amounts of story and plot points. But all those things are are obstacles thrown in between a bunch of guys trying to get a bunch of money. So Stegman is done as the same premise. It's just this beautiful way of telling a very simple story. There is a bunch of guys trying to get back a piece of evidence, and what stands in their way are all these interesting obstacles. And so in telling the story in a nonlinear fashion, I just thought it was a really interesting experiment on how to tell a very, very simple tale in a complicated way. Yeah, and I think that really does work for the movie. It gives it kind of an interesting spin that uh, differentiates it from other heist movies. Cool. 
yeah, no, I'm really glad that you appreciate that, you know? Yeah. Uh, one other thing in this movie that works really well is kind of turning the whole crime family stereotype on its ear where Gus is a criminal, but his yeah. wife doesn't want him to stop being a criminal. She just wants him to be a better criminal. Yeah. Well, I, <laughs> it's just kind of a funny spin on it. What made you think to do it that way? Yeah, that was a really personal thing. Um, and it's really based on my wife and I. Um, she has a regular job and is making a good living and I had stopped making a lot of money in order to be able to write this script and all she wanted me to do was be able to do what I wanted to do but still bring home the bacon and the sausage right yeah she wasn't willing to support me <laughs> I, but she also didn't want me to quit you know, what I wanted to do and so this was really, I found the conundrum that Gus was in because he obviously doesn't have a moral dilemma about being a thief, but what he doesn't want to be is a mediocre thief. He wants to be an excellent thief and he's trying to upgrade his life. And so that was a parallel that I was living as well. And uh, it just inspired that storyline. Yeah, that's really interesting. So what's like your favorite part of filming a heist movie or your favorite part of the heist genre in general? Oh my God, this was so unexpected. But my favorite part about doing this is finding the voice that I wanted to achieve and sharing it with the actors. It's like you spend a lot of time writing a script and you have something in your mind's eye. And then you must leave that behind and share it with other people who will then interpret your words and interpret the intentions of those characters. And that collaboration between writer-director and actor was the most exciting thing that happened to me on this project. So is it difficult in that sense to have to kind of let everybody in on kind of the whole story as it goes? So there's really, is it hard for them to like be surprised by what happens next if you have to tell them like the whole layout for the story? Yeah, no, it's not at all because they are professionals and actors know how to collaborate and really good ones will force their ideas upon you and force you to use them uh really good actors will force you to be able to will force you to try and understand what their interpretation of this character is and a really good director will understand that his job is to collaborate with the people that he's hired and put his trust in them and that's what we did on this job was everyone comes to the table with their best game and then in the end what comes out is a collaborative effort that's more powerful than you know, just the sum of his parts. It sounds a bit cliche, but that's really what the whole filmmaking thing is: is trying to take people, bring them together, and make them uh, their most their most powerful. And then what you create is the is the sum total of that effort, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you start trying to be totalitarian about it, if you start being a director who's bossing everybody around, then what you're not going to get is the very very best from the people that you've hired. Right. So that was an exciting experience for me. I mean, the other relationship that was super powerful uh, was the one that I had had with the DOP. Uh, his name is Osama Rawi, and he was 77 years old. Osama had shot, you know, at least 40 feature films and a bunch of gigantic television series and is an Emmy Award winner. And I was very lucky to get him on such a low-budget project. He just fell in love with the script and had some time. And he's the kind of person who can afford to do what he wants to do. So he didn't mind shooting in Winnipeg in the middle of the winter. <laughs> Because he loved his job. The relationship that I had with the director of photography was also something that um, really fed me. 
because it was so creative and he was so enabling and I would say something and he would say, okay, let's make that happen in the way that you try and see it. And he would really try to achieve everything that we wanted. And then he would save me if it was, if I had suggested something that was going to take too long and cost us too much time. And so we really got the bo- the best from each other, you know? Mm-hmm. So were there any challenges uh, filming the movie in Winnipeg in the dead of winter besides just it being so cold? <laughs> oh, God, yeah. I mean, listen, you know, we I live in Toronto, and we went to Winnipeg for a couple of reasons. I mean, one of them is they, they have fantastic incentives there uh, financially. So that was a benefit to us because the money that we had was made better by shooting in that province. Mm-hmm. But the other thing that was really important about shooting in Winnipeg in February was that this script was set in the winter. Um, unlike a lot of other heist films, you'll see them always set either you know down south or in some kind of warmer climate. climate. I mean, this film was meant to be Canadian and meant to be on the streets of the frozen tundra of middle America. <laughs> and so we thought, well, you know what? If we shoot in Winnipeg, which is, you know, 40 below in February, we are guaranteed to have snow. One of the greatest challenges that came forward was it was cold, but there was literally no snow. We had nothing but frozen brown grass oh, and really? <laughs> streets. So on a low-budget film, we didn't anticipate our budget for the fact that we had to rent, you know, over $5,000 worth of snow blankets oh, just wow. to fake snow in the background so we could set our setting, you know? Uh, and that was a real pain because things like snow blankets are A, expensive, and B, really cheesy and they don't look great. And C, they're time-consuming. You have to dress them in the background of every shot to make it consistent. So it was a real challenge just to get that one element uh, that we thought was a given. <laughs> so the way this movie ends, it kind of sets it up for a sequel. Are there any plans in the works for that? There are. I'm tinkering away in the background. It's not immediate. But uh, that's intentional. You know, like we deeply love Kruger. He's such a great character. So hopefully Kruger returns, you know? Yeah, Kruger is definitely a, a really cool character that really doesn't show up till later in the movie. You didn't expect to really like him so much. And then he shows up and he makes such an impact with, you know, his few scenes that he's in. Yeah. No, boom. No, he's amazing. Steven, <laughs> Steven Eric McIntyre. Amazing actor. Amazing guy. And he pulled off that role extraordinarily well. He's flying to Toronto tomorrow morning, and so when we uh, launch the film uh, for our friends and family screening tomorrow night, he'll be there. He and I become really good friends. We've stayed in touch ever since the shoot. You know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Him and uh, Sergey were a lot of fun to watch. What was it like <laughs> with us <laughs> making Sergey with, you know, he's so interested in writing the plot for the porno after he sees the giant octopus, and he's <laughs> he just gets so into the scene when he, as soon as he gets there. No, I'm glad you brought it up because, like I said earlier, one of the most exciting things that I experienced was this collaboration between director and actor. And I've written that dialogue. And those are, like, you know, there's some pretty long soliloquy, Hamlet-esque type sections right. by Sergei there talking, yeah, about the foreign films, about making porn films and, and pontificating about what has happened and trying to figure out what's going on there. And Dave Brown <clears throat> played the role of Sergei, and he's an excellent and accomplished actor. But you'll notice he played that really big really broad they say comedically yeah it wasn't a tight little game it wasn't realistic it was completely over the top with a fake russian accent and he was out on a limb because you know it's a risky thing as an actor to play a role that way uh it could come off terribly 
And so what he had to do was, with me, take a risk. And he would say, I'm going to try it like this, David. And I'd look at the monitor and I'd listen and I'd watch him. And he'd turn around and he'd say to me, is that the stupidest thing you've ever heard? (laughs) (laughs) And I'd look back at him and I'd say, no, Sergey, it's great. Let's go with it. And he'd look at me and he'd take a beat and a pause and I could see him take a deep breath. And he's like, all right, man, I trust you. Let's do this together. And uh, so we were out on a limb in, in that way. And I think he's come off really, really well. I love the way he played it. You know, he shouted almost every single one of his words. Right. And there are people who don't like that. He and I, we both loved it. And I'm really happy with the way that he uh, brought Sergey to life, you know? Yeah, he was definitely one of the more fun characters to watch. As soon as he comes on screen, he really makes a big impact. Absolutely. You so, got to get, yeah, as a director, you just have to get people to trust you. You have to get your actors to be able to trust you and trust your judgment enough so that they'll take those kinds of risks so they don't come off looking like an idiot, you know? Right. <laughs> Uh, so what was kind of the inspiration or the how did you build the actual giant octopus that's the centerpiece for most of the movie? Oh, my God. That was made by a Winnipeg designer named Gord Wilding. He did a brilliant job. And again, you know, we didn't have all of the money that we really needed to get <laughs> what we had in our mind's eye. Yeah. So Gord and I would take meetings. And uh, we'd talk about how this octopus should look. And, you know, we have a short preparation time to turn around the manufacturing of this stuff. And he would make drawings for me. And I'd say, how about like this? And how about like that? And the position of the eyes and the position of the body were really important because we needed to create a relationship between the octopus and whoever stood in front of it. And so uh, in the end, we I think Gore did an excellent job. Um, you know, it's... it's uh, not perfect, <laughs> <clears throat> but I still loved it, and I know that he did his very, very best, and that's what's most important. Again, as a director, is drawing out uh, as much of the excellent performance that people have to give you, and uh, I think you know, Gord, he couldn't have made something better than what he did with the resources that we had, uh, and that's not an excuse. That's just me explaining. Yeah, pros- I mean. Yeah. It's, it's definitely a fun centerpiece to have in the middle of the movie. Every time you come back to it and you see it, it's just really, really the main thing everyone focuses on. At least every time I saw it, I had to at least just look at it for a minute. It's just oh, yeah. it's so interesting. The sad, sad part of this whole story is that I really wanted to keep it. But we just, it's, it was massive. <laughs> yeah, how was, tall was it, like, so in it real life? Tall. It was massive. It was this massive and insanely heavy octopus that we had to have rigged up on these gigantic steel arms on the back of the headboard of that bed. And it was a lot stiffer than I originally wanted. Like we wanted it to kind of be a little more um, jelly-like. Yeah. But we ended up with this huge, heavy, 10-foot pink octopus. (laughs) And the sad part of the story is that we had nowhere to store it because we just couldn't afford to rent storage space. So it had to be demoed just to be taken out of the front door of the house. Oh, wow. And the octopus didn't survive, you know. That octopus is now gone forever. Oh man, I was hoping you'd make a cameo in the in the sequel. I know. <laughs> we have all the specs; he can be recreated. Oh, that's good. Um, well, one other thing, a little bit off topic, but uh, I was looking at your IMDb page earlier today, and yeah. it gave you a credit for directing two episodes of a show called Evil Encounters. Oh yeah. So, that's like a show where people have paranormal experiences, and then it's like a dramatic retelling with actors, right? 
Yes, it is. So what was it like to film that show? I, I loved making that show. Listen, the premise of that show is, okay, guys, here's what we're going to do. Let's make a TV show about people's most terrifying experiences in the woods. That would be <laughs> criteria. It can be anything that happens to anybody, but it has to be terrifying and it has to have happened in the woods. So when I took – I was just a director, not a creator on that show or a writer. So I took the scripts and directed those episodes. There was two one-hour episodes. Uh, and I did things like you know families bumping into Bigfoot or got children bumping into devil worshippers or um, you know all kinds of other creepy and weird things that happen uh, to folks in the woods. And it was really a fun shoot because – we had, I think, uh, 111 pages mm-hmm. with 21 speaking roles to shoot in five days. Wow. <laughs> so it was a really great film crew. It wasn't like a rock and roll documentary or factual or reality show crew. It was a real film crew, and we just broke the scripts down, and we were like shooting 15 pages a day uh, with guys who had come from low-budget horror films. And so all the blood and the guts and the costumes were top-notch. And it was just really, it was an insanely fun experience. Um, as a director, you're normally confronted with situations that confine you. You know, like, oh my God, how am I going to make this scene work with these lines of dialogue in this hallway or this living room or this kitchen or this car or wherever it is? Right. You know, like, how do I get my camera and shoot around the corners? Or where do the actors walk? And when do they say this line at what place? Because the geography of a set always limits how you can do things. It was the exact opposite for me on this show (laughs) because they said, David, look, we've rented five acres. That's your set. Go out there and figure out how to shoot two one-hour shows in this five acres. So I was like, what? I was walking around the woods by myself trying to scout locations saying, well, I'll shoot this scene here and I'll shoot that scene by the bush. I'll shoot scene number seven over by the giant oak tree. We'll shoot scene number two by this bunch of little pine shrubs. You know, <laughs> like right. how do you make this up? And then we, and the thing is, because it was terrifying, it was all at night, so we wouldn't arrive at work until five in the afternoon. We'd start shooting at seven, and we'd shoot till seven in the morning in the woods in March in Canada, freezing cold with snow, <laughs> all night long, traipsing around trying to find out where we are and what we're about to shoot. Right. It was a insane challenge, but really a lot of fun. Oh, that sounds that sounds actually really cool. I have to check out those episodes you directed. Yeah, um, the the show airs on Travel and Escape in the U.S. and um, I think it premieres coming up in January. Cool. So uh, that was all that I had. Thanks again for taking the time to inter- interview with me. And uh, where can people catch the movie? All right. So come see Stegman's Dead in Canada all week this coming week, starting November seventeenth at the Carlton Cinemas. It opens on November 19th in Vancouver at the Rio, and it plays in on December 8th in Winnipeg. Um, and there is a Stegman Instagram page, Stegman Facebook page, and Raven Banner is the distributor here. So if you check on any of those sites, there will be more listings for more screenings. Is there any plans for a VOD release, or is it purely screenings right now? Yeah, there is VOD coming out on December 12th on both iTunes and Super Channel. All right, cool. Well, thanks for coming on, David. Uh, Thank you very much, George.